Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I'll, I'll take it. Um, but I, I do appreciate the opportunity, always appreciate the opportunity to, to share God's word with you all. I do appreciate you guys' prayers uh, for us. As I'm getting some, there we go. Uh, anyway, I do appreciate your guys' prayers for us as we were in Oregon and support for us as we were out. I, and we can tell that we were prayed for. We had a really good week. Um, and you'll have to ask more about that as, as time goes on. And we'll be more than happy to share. Uh, so we're going to be back in Exodus uh, this morning. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Uh, in, it, but before we get there, as you guys are turning there, let me just share a few kind of somewhat current events that have gone on in the history of our nation. Uh, three individuals to call your attention to. The first one, Jack Kevorkian. Jack Kevorkian might be a name you're familiar with, maybe not, but he's going to be a name that's remembered in the medical field. Back in 1970s, he was known uh, and became an advocate for voluntary euthanasia. You might be, what in the world is that? It's more commonly known as physician-assisted suicide, and he was a proponent of that starting in the 70s, and he went on to go ahead and prescribe life-ending medication for various individuals, and according to his lawyer, he was responsible for the death of over 130 people. Kermit Gosnell is another name which was largely ignored in the media. Uh, Gosnell was most it was infamous for his gruesome abortion clinic. Uh, actually, it was interesting, the FBI w- got word of a drug ring that Gosnell was kind of running on the side, so they went in on a drug raid and found a abortion clinic with that was just filled with baby parts all over the place. And he was also he had also killed two women and maimed others. Brittany Maynard is an individual who was diagnosed with a terminal illness. Uh, she had a tum- terminal tumor in her brain, and she tried to get treatment for it, and it was found to not respond to that treatment, and it was just a matter of time before she, she died. So without hope of a cure, she was living in California, and she moved from California to Oregon, where Oregon had recently passed a, a a bill measure, a, some kind of legislation which allowed physician-assisted suicide. They called it death with dignity. And then on November 1st, 2014, she ended her life with those drugs prescribed by a doctor. Well, so today, we are turning our attention to the Sixth Commandment. And what do all these stories have to do with in common? They all have to do with death and how it is that our culture still commits murder to this day. So let's turn our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. We will read the commandment itself, and we're going to be kind of going a couple other places. Very short verse. All right, here it is. You shall not murder. God's very clear with the sixth commandment what you are not to do. Um, There's three. What we're going to do as we go is progress throughout today is we're going to kind of go divide it up into three parts. First part is going to be how our culture violates the commandment how we, how everyone has probably broken the commandment, and then the last part's going to be how it is that we can have hope uh, even though we've broken God's commandment. 
But this commandment's pretty straightforward, doesn't really need a lot of explanation. God's very clear and direct with this prohibition here. It's about the needless taking of human life. We are not to do that. So as human beings, we are not to take the lives of others unjustly or unwarranted. He actually gave this commandment earlier in Scripture. You can find this in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. This is God speaking to Noah, and he says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So in this particular kind of restatement of the command, what God does is give the reason for why murder is so heinous of a crime in his sight. It has to do with us as human beings being made in the image of God. And so when we take the life of another human being, it's as if we are attempting to kill God in some form or fashion. So it's a capital crime in the Old Testament. It requires the life of the one who took another's life. It's not very long in human history before we have murder. We have, if you guys kind of go back to Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, we have the creation account. Genesis 3, we have the fall. And then in Genesis 4, what do we have? Cain murdering his brother Abel. So it's not long in human history before we have, uh, before we have murder. God not only condemns the premeditated act of murder, but this Hebrew word that we find in Exodus uh, chapter 20, verse 13 here, could also mean involuntary manslaughter. Let me just give you one example that you can find in the book of Leviticus. Let's say that you have an animal that's very kind of aggressive and violent and has kind of that reputation. If I, as that animal's owner, don't take care of that animal and it kills somebody, I am responsible for the death that that animal caused because it's, I need to be about the cause of life. It's unintentional manslaughter. So God is about the promotion of life. I think that's probably the better way to be the way to say it uh, on the positive side. God wants life and to bring life in the situation, not death. But does the Bible then condemn all taking of human life? Well, I think the answer is pretty easy to, on this one. It's no, and it's relatively easy to prove. Uh, I think it's kind of the idea of this comes from a, a somewhat misleading King James translation where it says, you shall not kill versus murder. So when you see kill, you might just think any, any kind of killing is, is wrong. But the word itself talks about uh, the premeditated act of murder or unintentional manslaughter. But God, a little bit later on, is going to command the Israelites, hey, you guys need to go into Canaan, and there are some people that you're going to have to take care of, and you're going to have to remove. So on the occasion of war, and God's going to command Israel to go to war here uh, later on in th these accounts, and he's, it would be strange for God to say, no killing, oh yeah, then go to war. I, I, God's not going to contradict himself like that. And also, what we just read in Genesis, it, in causes of justice, right? In causes of justice, God prescribed uh, the taking of human life, but it was not unwarranted, right? In this case, it was a capital punishment. A capital crime of murder required a capital response. So that was also a merited account. And last but not least is self-defense. Somebody's trying to take my life. I have the right and the ability to defend my own life. So the Sixth Commandment does allow death on certain occasions. However, our first impulse, I think, sometimes is to find exceptions uh, rather than to kind of figure out how we can keep it. But the underlying principle of this command is all about promoting life. As a neighbor, remember, the second table of the law is all about loving your neighbor. 
And if we are to love our neighbor, what we need to be about as loving our neighbor is promoting their life, their welfare, their general good. That's to be what we're about. It's about loving our neighbor. Uh, God is giving a negative prohibition here, but there's a positive injunction behind it. So if that's what it means... How does it apply? So we're going to look at how, it's, how our culture is breaking us right now, and then how we might be breaking it later. So how then does our culture, our current moment, where we break the Sixth Commandment? The first one that should probably come to everyone's mind is abortion. Abortion is uh, all over the place, and it is a widely accepted practice. But what does the Bible teach about human life? Well, the Bible teaches that human life begins at the moment of conception. Psalm 139. 13 through 16 says this, For you, that's God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And in Jeremiah 1.5 says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So scripture evidence is really clear that at the moment of conception, we have human life. So when we have abortion, we have the taking of human life at the moment of conception. So it is murder. So it's a heinous evil that our culture propagates all over the place. Did you guys know that there have been over 50 million abortions since Roe v. Wade in 1973? Just to put, get, put that in perspective, the Holocaust, there was the death of 6 million Jews. So while strides are being made, and I do think that there are some good strides being made, and you can look at some current events that say that, there's also other things that are going on that are not so good, right? So, but one of our roles as Christians is to speak for the defenseless and helpless, and is there another group that's out there that's more defenseless and helpless than a baby who cannot speak in the womb? An interesting trend that's kind of gone on lately in the abortion camp is that abortion activists are saying, you know what, we need to take away the kind of the negative stigma that's going on with abortion. Instead, what we need to do is start bragging about our abortions. You know, start, you know, proclaim it loudly, be bold about it, and if I'm bold about it, we're going to remove all that negative stigma, and it's going to be more socially acceptable. So don't hide your abortion any longer, but just brag about the abortion that you had so it's more socially acceptable. Um, New York and Maryland passed some very terrible laws lately as well, uh, allowing for abortion very late on in pregnancies, uh, and, and it's just getting crazier as we go on. What's also even crazier in our culture is that nest of endangered animals warrant a, sternal, a sterner penalty in abortion that, or than abortion in our country. For example, abortion is legal. You can have an abortion. But if you go mess around with the eggs of a bald eagle, you could be prosecuted and be put years in prison. Kind of an odd situation where animals are going to be protected better than human life. But I think this comes from this sort of mentality, and this is a Ingrid Newark, Newkirk says this, and she was the co-founder of PETA, and I think this is why, in their, their minds, this is acceptable. They say this, there's no rational basis for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy, they're all animals. 
So why worry about human life if we're just an animal just like any other animal that's out there? Now, for the Christian, we know that that is not right because we are made in the image of God and life and human personhood begins at the moment of conception. But for the postmodern secularists, they are, have, a, have a question now. They have a problem. When does human life begin? When does it begin? If it doesn't begin at the moment of conception, when does it start? Is it first trimester, second trimester, viability? I don't know. Did you guys know that there's an ethicist out there? His name is Peter Singer. Peter Singer is probably one of the most influential ethicists that's, uh, that's out there today. I believe he works at Princeton University. He suggests that they don't really become people till the age of two. So, as a secularist, you just kind of have a bunch of different opinions. You get to kind of make up your own age and whatever you happen to think is a human person. So, for scientists, even scientists are coming around and saying that life begins at the moment of conception. And it's only not dealing with the supposed inconvenience of a child that you can end human life and that it becomes acceptable when you can just say, ah, oh, it's not really human. Recently in Colorado, I thought this was interesting because I, kinda, I teach at community college. There was a bill that was proposed that was going to make it mandatory for health educators to promote abortion as acceptable birth control option along the same lines as condoms and abstinence. In fact, you're to discourage abstinence teaching and promote abortion under this bill. Now, I don't know if this bill has been passed. I don't, I don't believe it has, but I do think it's still a live bill uh, in our Colorado Senate. So is murder uh, something that we struggle with as our culture today? Yes, and one of the means that we do that is through abortion. And it's one of our ways that we carry it out. But there's a second way that's worth drawing our attention to that maybe we just don't think about uh, enough, and that's at the end of life, which is physician-assisted suicide. So if abortion is at the beginning of life, physician-assisted suicide is the end of life. A few years ago, Colorado passed a bill allowing patients to, re to request life-ending drugs. I gotta say, if, it, if, it, if death was not involved, it's almost kind of humorous, the word games that they play. Uh, and to kind of explain why this really isn't murder and suicide, it's just something else. It's not suicide, it's dying with dignity. And I am not getting a drug, I am getting, or I am not getting poison, I am getting medication. So suicide is self-murder, no matter how you cut it. And now the law of the land says medical professionals can now be complicit in this scheme to end your life. Now I can understand being in a lot of pain, having a terminal illness, maybe wanting to end your life because you are in a lot of pain, but let's maybe talk about uh, spiritual care, phys uh, physical care, uh, psychological care, all these other things that we can do rather than, oh, you know, well, if you're in a lot of pain, let's just give you some drugs and you can go poison yourself. That's what physician-assisted suicide does. The thought is that you are totally autonomous and you should be able to end your life whenever you want. However, if we're going to take God seriously in this commandment, God is very clear. No murder, including yourself. You are not to murder yourself. So suicide is never justified according to scripture and clear reason. So God is about life, not death. Now, it kind of, it really gets under, under my skin. It makes me very sad and frustrated that physician-assisted suicide and abortion is the law of the land. Uh, it kind of reminds me that we live in a very godless land that has divorced itself from the word of God. 
See, I think it only in a culture that has divorced itself from God's word does those kind of things become acceptable. Now, we could spend, and I could spend all morning dealing with all the various arguments in abortion, physician-assisted suicide, maybe some other issues that are out there. But, but, we, but Jesus gives some additional insight into this commandment to have us consider the more broad application of it. So Jesus gives instructions concerning the Sixth Commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. You can find that in Matthew chapter 5, which is where I invite you to turn now. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to point out how maybe all of us have broken this, the Sixth Commandment. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So we're going to be camped out here for uh, a few minutes as we kind of unpack what Jesus is saying. First of all, Jesus is not saying the Sixth Commandment is no longer in effect, right? You might kind of get that from verse 21, verse 20. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, Jesus is not saying that. What he's doing is reacting against the traditional teaching of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very narrow in their interpretation, and they were like, well, as long as you don't kill anybody, you've kept the commandment. And Jesus was pointing out, like, no, the, the, there's an applications that go beyond just the physical act of killing somebody. It goes into our attitudes and into our, our words. The problem with the Pharisees is they, are, they were only concerned with external actions. In fact, this is actually true today. You go on the street and you say, well, you know, do you, how are you going to get to heaven? Well, I'm a pretty good person. Well, how, are you, how do I know you're a pretty good person? Well, I haven't killed anybody. Like, that's the only qualification for what it means to be a good person is to not kill people, which I'm glad that you haven't killed anybody. I'm very thankful that you have not. But I just think it's interesting that we are only concerned with that external activity rather than what's going on in the inside, which is what Jesus is drawing our attention to here in Matthew chapter 5. So there's two ways that we can also violate the, the commandment according to Jesus. The first one's in our attitude. The second one's in our words, and they're both connected. So the first one, our attitude. Jesus says that one who's angry with his brother has broken the commandment. How? Well, anger sometimes reveals a hostility towards another person that's unjustified. I don't think Jesus is talking about justified anger here, but rather just the anger that we have that just has no really reason, rhyme or reason to it. Uh, for example, later on, Jesus would get angry and drive the money changers out of the temple. So it's not like Jesus is saying, if you're angry at all, you're in sin. But when you are, have an unjustified anger towards others, then you are in sin. Isn't it odd how some of the things that we get angry about aren't a big deal even a few minutes later? For example, how somebody might chew their gum or smell or look. We just get so mad in that moment, like, oh, why do you chew your food that way? Um, and we get so irritated in the moment, and five minutes later, you're like, really? I'm throwing a temper tantrum because somebody chews loudly. I mean, and so some of these weird things that we have that we get really fly off the handle about, unjustified anger. 
In fact, our internet culture loves to do this, by the way, too. If you don't say things exactly how somebody wants it, well, you know, it's time for internet outrage. So I'm going to read and in between the lines and read everything. And if they didn't say it quite right, let's make sure that we just roast this person on the internet. That's what our internet culture just loves to do right now. So let's just get angry about things. And this is not limited to non-Christians. Christians and non-Christians alike seem to be caught up in this internet outrage culture. As a general rule of internet etiquette, by the way, if you wouldn't say that to somebody in person, don't post it on the internet um, because that's not, it's not becoming of you. So it's, it's amazing that some very kind, modest people in person are just jerks online. It's like there's, a, there's an interesting hypocrisy that's going on there. I think it, a lot of it has to do with that removal of in-person communication. Like if I'm not physically present with somebody, all of a sudden, hey, I can just say whatever I want and it's not a big deal. But what about, what about you this morning? Do you have any unjustified anger towards another person? Maybe you're harboring a grudge towards another person. Maybe you are envious of somebody at work and you're angry about how they got the promotion and you didn't. Maybe you need to forgive somebody. Youth, children, maybe it's you're talking back to your parents with an angry, biting attitude. Might be a lot, there's lots of ways that this might apply. See, Jesus is pointing out that the sixth commandment isn't just concerned with the physical act of killing somebody, but also how, might, how we might be wishing harm upon others in our hearts. Remember, the second table of the law is about loving your neighbor. And this anger and hostility that we might be harboring in our hearts show that we are not loving our neighbor. Paul would write this in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. He would write this. Be angry. And do not sin. Do not, this, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. See, our anger is often, I think, driven and directed by our pride. Do we feel justified in our anger because somebody got what we wanted? Or perhaps somebody did a better job than we did and we're kind of frustrated and angry about it. See, pride is a nasty, nasty weed that grows up in all these multiple ways. Anger is just happens to be one of them. So if that's how we might break the commandment in our attitude, how might we keep it? Well, number one, I think, is to take a pause. Remember what I said about five minutes? Sometimes you just realize, like, what I'm mad about isn't a big deal. Maybe you just need to take a break. Um, you know, when you, as parents, you sometimes would tell your kids, take 10 seconds before you respond. Uh, that's actually really good advice. Take a pause. Think about what it is that's actually going on here. Uh, for myself personally, just the just the physical removal, taking a pause from a situation can help me realize, like, yeah, you know, what I'm really frustrated about, really not that big of a deal, I need to let that go. The second thing is to go to God's word. Whether or not my anger is just, how am I going to know whether or not my anger is justified? Well, if I find biblical warrant for what it is that I'm angry about, then yes, my anger is justified. But if I hold it up to the scrutiny of God's word and God's word condemns my anger, then I know that I should not be angry about that particular situation. I think most of our justifications would go away if we, if we look at it like, okay, I'm angry because of this. I look at it and because of God's word, then I know whether or not I should be angry or not. Third thing that we might do is pray about it. Sometimes you might, the feeling of anger might not be dissipating, and we need to give the situation over to God. You might have been harmed unjustly, and maybe you have 
justified anger, but there's nothing you can do. Perhaps your boss insulted you at work and there's nothing you can do because it was your boss. That sort of situation. However, we need to remember that it's God's responsibility to avenge, not ours. Right? A good David, I believe, is a good example of this. Remember the story of David? He was a servant of Saul, served Saul faithfully for several years, and then Saul grew to be jealous of David and sought to kill David, uh, sought to take his life. On at least two separate occasions, David had the opportunity to kill Saul, and he refused to do so, trusting that God would be the one to take care of the situation, not himself. So we need to take, give these situations that we might be angry about over to God like David did and pray about it. In fact, many of the Psalms are inspired by this, are, are involved with this time when David's running from Saul, dealing with his enemies. The last thing is to forgive. So pause, go to God's word, pray about it, and then forgive. See, unforgiveness, I think, can come from anger as well and leads towards bitterness, hatred, resentment towards another person. Forgiveness deals with that situation, and it's, and it's also a command, not a suggestion. God doesn't say, forgive when you feel like it, but forgive. In fact, we are commanded to forgive as we have been forgiven. You guys remember in, in the Lord's Prayer, we, are, we ask God to forgive us as we have forgiven others. See, these are just a few suggestions on how we might keep the commandment in attitude, but there's other ways that we might be violating as well that Jesus is going to draw our attention to as well. Not just our attitudes, but also our, our words. We might be attempting to slay somebody with our words. Jesus condemns the insult in Matthew 5, 22 here. He says that whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, maybe you haven't gone around calling people fool, but a common, I guess, kind of parallel for us would be like idiot or stupid. The general principle that I think Jesus is driving home, though, is about our words. We might not be attempting to kill somebody with our hands or in externally, but we might be attempting to kill them with our words, slay them with our tongues. Proverbs 18.21 says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Did you catch that? The Solomon, in all of his wisdom, says that your tongue... You can either speak life with it, or you can bring death with it. There's an old saying that was out there, terrible saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I think Solomon and others, and it's been proven, it's demonstrably false. Words do sting, and they can bring life or death. Now, I would encourage all of you, everybody this week to go read James 3, 1 through 12. We're just going to read just a small portion of it. Um, but there's the portion that we're going to look at today is James 3, 9 through 10. And James, James says this, With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Do you see the connection that, uh, that James is drawing from Genesis earlier? See, James is noting that uh, on one occasion we're praising God, but then on the other occasion we're cursing, and we're cursing people made in the image of God. Drawing our attention to that passage that we read in Genesis 9, which is about like when somebody kills, they're attempting to kill somebody who's made in the image of God. So James is drawing a very similar connection there. So how might you be maybe attempting to slay someone with the tongue? One way might be through gossip. Maybe you engage and spread rumors and false reports about people. 
Maybe it's slander. Uh, you, you are spreading a false statement about somebody. You just, or maybe you're trying to put down their accomplishments because you aren't a fan of them. Maybe it's name-calling. You just forgot about being kind, forgot about what it means to be good in speech, and just go straight to name-calling. Snowflake, stupid, idiot, whatever it happens to be, you just are de- you're about demeaning a fellow image-bearer of God. See, the Bible explicitly condemns those kinds of sins throughout its pages. Maybe you didn't think about it before, but Jesus is, drawn, is saying, look, those are violations of the sixth commandment as well. Now, here's a, here's a thought on how we might keep it, and this is not original to me. It's a helpful acronym, I think, on to help us process how it is that we use our words. It's to think before we speak. So this is an acronym. So each letter stands for something here. So the T, is it truthful? Am I speaking only in alignment with God's word? Am I spreading a root? You know, am I admitting truth, maybe? Am I lying? So is what I say, according to God's word, is it truthful about the situation? The H stands for helpful. Is it helpful? Is my goal to build others up, to encourage them, to help them grow in Christ? Is that my motivation and what it is that I'm about to say? I stands for informative. Is my motivation just to give information? I'm just trying to bring some clarity to the situation. Am I, maybe, or, or maybe you're trying to spread a rumor. Or have you actually researched the story? By the way, those stories that you share on the internet... Research those stories that you share on the internet before you repost those, because a lot of those are false. So have you? So before you post that, maybe ask, like, have I actually researched this and know this to be true or not? N is, is it needed? Do you actually have to say something? This is thumper wisdom. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Sometimes you just don't need to say anything, and we should just hold our tongues. And the K stands for kind. Is it kind? Is my speech concerned with another person's good? My tone correct? Am I speaking to bring life to the situation? Am I talking out of love? Or am I speaking out of this anger and hostility? You know, another book that you could go look at, which has a lot to say about our words in tongue, is the book of Proverbs. There's many warnings, instructions, and helpful guides to your speech. I'm just gonna, I just selected a few from the book of Proverbs. I started in chapter 12, and I just selected about four or five, just to give you a taste of what Proverbs gives us when it comes towards our speech. So Proverbs 12, 6. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. Proverbs 12, 13. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. 1218, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And then in 1219, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Last but not least, Proverbs 13.3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. As one who's put his foot in his mouth on many occasions, that last one is an ouch. Because many times I just didn't need to say anything in certain situations. So the Bible spends a great deal of time talking about our speech. Why? Because as we said earlier, life and death are in the power of the tongue. And the Bible is very concerned about our speech. So how are you using your words? Are you using them to give life? Or are you using them to destroy? 
So maybe you haven't killed anybody, and I don't think any of you have. Uh, but we might not be doing that physically, but in attitude and in word, we might be attempting to slay someone. So when you look at the application Jesus derives from the sixth commandment, I think we can all say that we have violated and broken the command of God. We would stand condemned between, before a holy God who is about life, not death. So what hope do we have? Is there any hope that we might have uh, for those of us who have violated this commandment? Is there hope for murderers? See, God's grace is sufficient to overcome even the worst of sins. Think about the, the, uh, the murderers that God redeemed and used. For example, Moses, the one who's writing this. Moses murdered a man, went in exile, and he became the man that God used to deliver Israel out of Egypt. David committed adultery and murder, and he penned many of the Psalms. Paul persecuted the church. He brought and was complicit in many deaths, and he was also forgiven. But there's one other character that you might not be as familiar with, which I actually thought we would, we would just turn there and read his story, how even though he was one who murdered, God redeemed and rescued. So places you probably haven't turned to in a long time, Second Chronicles chapter 33. This, this man's name is Manasseh. Second Chronicles will be towards the beginning of your Bible uh, after first, first and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. You'll have Second Chronicles. Pick up in verse one. Manasseh was twelve years old when he began to reign, and he reigned fifty-five years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father, Hezekiah, had broken down. He erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah, and he worshipped the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling, and omens, and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the food of Israel from the, from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than all the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. All right, just keep your finger there because we're going to come back to this passage. So Manasseh, one of the most wicked kings that Judah ever had, commits major idolatry, setting up altars all over the place, idols to Baal, to Asherah, etc., even making idols in the house of the Lord. He's a very idolatrous king. And his idolatry went so deep that he even murdered and sacrificed his own sons to these idols. So he's a very wicked king. He had a reputation for being one of the worst kings that Judah ever had. Let's pick up in verse 10, see what happens to Manasseh. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people. 
and they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gahon in the valley in the entrance of the fish gate, carried around to Othville, and raised it to a very high height. He put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah. And he took away all the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the idol altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord, offered on it sacrifices of peace, offerings, and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. I think it's, we'll go ahead and pause there, let you read the rest of his story. But it's amazing to see this transformation of Manasseh. He goes from this idolatrous, murderous king to a king who is repented, destroying these idols, and trusting in, in the Lord. You see, no person is too far gone from the grace of God. See, no person is beyond the reach of God's salvation. His arm is not shortened. If God can answer a man like Manasseh and honor his request for forgiveness, he will, of course, hear yours. See, God's forgiveness and grace are for any who would seek it and call upon his name. Maybe you need to do that this morning. You need to call to God and say, God, I've done such these things, and I need to be right with you. Jesus himself was murdered on the cross so that all lawbreakers could be reconciled to God. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you asked God to cleanse you from your speech and of your wickedness of heart? Would you cling to Christ and ask him to cleanse you of your murderous words and attitudes and to help you to learn how to love your neighbor? There's no hope apart from Christ and I would hope that all of us return to him so that he can transform our hearts into to being the, the people that he has called us to be. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer now. And just however the Lord's good, the Holy Spirit's leading you to pray, we'll just have a few moments of silence and I'll, I'll close this in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we have broken your commands. You've told us to love our neighbor. And to not murder and yeah, but I think about all the uh, all the murder that our culture and society does. God, I just I pray that it would stop. And I do pray for our hearts that we'd be speak up for the defenseless and the and the hopeless. God, I pray for us that you just give us the the ability to speak life not death. Give us attitudes that are filled full of love. Help us to truly love our neighbors as ourselves. For guys, I do pray that you'd rescue any of us that need to be rescued from our attitudes, of our words, of our deeds this morning. Draw them close to you. I ask this in your name. Amen.